2 Corinthians chapter 5, we begin reading in verse 1. We'll read through uh, verse 14, I'm sorry, verse 15. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 through 15 this morning. Now I'll be reading out of the New King James Version as is our custom. God's Word declares, For we know that if our earthly house, this tent, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation, which is from heaven. If indeed, having been clothed, we shall not be found naked. For we who are in this tent groan, being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed, but further clothed, that mortality might be swallowed up by life. Now he who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who also has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So we are always confident, knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. We are confident, yes, well, pleased rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Therefore we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. But we are well known to God, and I also trust are well known in your consciences. For we do not commend ourselves again to you, but give you opportunity to boast on our behalf, that you may have an answer for those who boast in appearance and not in heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God, or if we are of sound mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ compels us, because we judge thus, that if one died for all, then all died. And he died for all, that those who live should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. This morning we want to uh, continue our study, and I need to explain apparently my apparel. Um, Chris Cannon said, that's the most dressed down I've ever seen you for church. Um, Not in Cuba, which is where I got this, and this is a Cuban dress shirt, so this is what pastors wear down there. So last week I dressed in my India outfit today out of Cuba, trying to keep the needs of others in front of us, and not only our prayers, but just visually to consider them. And by the way, those of you who have been away, we do have new pictures of all the orphans uh, that we support there on the back. We put them beside their old picture. It's been about five years or so, and so when you see a little guy that looks like he's like 12, and now he's got a mustache and Growing that happens when you're away and don't have pictures for several years. So I encourage you to take a look there, but also not only to look, but to be in prayer for them as well, uh, as well as the work there in, in Cuba that we get very little word from in Haiti and other places. Well, before we get into our study this morning, uh, let's go Lord in prayer, and we'll do a little review and uh, get us up and running into a portion of Scripture that uh, is a challenge uh, to join Paul in his testimony. But before we do so, let's go, Lord, in prayer. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us. We thank you for the opportunity to gather your name, for to open your word, and 
to consider its truth. Lord, we know that we are responsible for it, for we have it here before us, and we will hear it today. And we are confronted with whether we will choose to believe it to the point of obedience, true belief, or whether we will simply reject it by ignoring it, by just adding it to a file of knowledge without obedience. And Lord, all of this is to reject you. And Lord, guard us from that. Help us to be willing servants of yours today and willing to go to your instructions for our lives and to bring them into our very lives. We need your help in this, of course. Lord, we do pray as always and continue to pray that you might guard us from bringing our beliefs to your word, but rather help us to derive our beliefs from your word we might not be found manipulating it to conform to what we want it to say, that we would simply receive it for what it does say and conform ourselves to the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. And it's His name we pray. Amen. We have been pressing through Paul's defense, and that's really what 2 Corinthians becomes in large measure, a defense of his ministry as it has been under assault by those who have come behind him there uh, in Corinth. Uh, And accusations have flown around, uh, and Paul has been handling them systematically, as you would expect Paul to do. Uh, He has, in the course of that, shared with us some excellent theology of what motivates him, what drives him, and what has caused him to engage in this ministry, what is transformed him from being an enemy of the gospel to being its slave. That he desires for the Corinthians that they would be transformed into the same image of Jesus Christ from glory to glory by the Spirit of the Lord. He has pressed on in this ministry and he persists in it, though he has encountered opposition almost everywhere he's gone. And that opposition, um, we often look at the effect from the Judaizers, from the Jews who opposed him and raised up uh, opposition within the uh, synagogues against him. We've seen opposition uh, from silversmiths and other idol worshippers of Rome. We've seen a full gamut of it. And Paul says, I press on. None of this dissuades me from following after and ministering the gospel of Jesus Christ. And therefore, I will not allow opposition from within the church to dissuade me either. The opposition he's really dealt with over the course of most of his missionary journeys was with those outside of the church who did not have the gospel. But now, in his later ministry, he is dealing with those who have come internally into the church and are ravaging the church. Though they are numbered among the church, uh, they are not of the church. Or they would not be doing such injury to the message and ministry of the church and the Lord's apostles. And this is not unique to Paul. Um, Others experience the same results, not only in New Testament times, but throughout the church ages. 
Some of the finest preachers and pastors throughout the history of the church have been uh, not only uh, dealt, had to deal with assaults from outside, we expect that often, but it's the opposition that wells up from inside the church that they often struggle the hardest with. And Paul's no different. And so he presses on, he does not become disheartened or lose his heart. He is rather renewed day by day, and we have seen all that through chapter 4. And we come into some of the fundamental knowledge that he is building upon in this commitment in his life. It is not simply that Paul just has an indomitable will. That is not who Paul is. Rather, it is built upon what he knows of Jesus Christ, that he has been raised from the dead, and that we have a place with him. And we have studied that for several weeks now. That we have a place with Christ in that resurrection should we persevere. Should we have that faith that endures. That we have this wonderful glory. This exceeding weight of glory, he says in chapter 4, that awaits us. That we will participate in. That God has prepared us for that time. And that he has given us in this time, in this era of our weakness, uh, the Holy Spirit as our guarantee, as the demonstrated proof that we belong to that kingdom is the work of the Holy Spirit in this age. And we spent a week discovering uh, that evidence, that if that evidence is lacking in our lives, that if we cannot see the Holy Spirit at work, that it really brings to question our relationship with God and whether or not we really have been prepared by God for that kingdom. That we long for that day. We looked last week at the phrase, verse 7, the sentence, verse 7, for we walk by faith, not by sight, what it means to walk in the Spirit, what it means to walk by faith. And we discovered that to walk by faith was in verse 9, that we make it our goal, but all that we do is well-pleasing God. What was well pleasing to us was that we get out of this place of flesh and be in that place of his presence. Paul says that's what would please me the most, would be to be able to be finished with this time and look forward to that time that I've been prepared for. But that's not the goal of my life is to do what is well pleasing to me. Rather, my, the goal of our lives is to be well-pleasing to God. And this is the radical shift that needs to occur in every Christian's life. And it is very much foreign to much of what we see in Christendom today, this uh, calling of God to not please yourself anymore, but rather to please God. This is what it means to walk by faith. That we are not walking by sight, looking at the things of this world, whether it be enjoying them and longing after them, or whether it be moaning and groaning over them and desiring to be released from them. Either way, it's about pleasing ourselves. Paul says this isn't a walk by faith. The walk by faith is that we're going to please God. I'm not just going to please Him a little. And I love that phrase, and and it's going to, captivate my attention for some time 
that we are well-pleasing to Him, extremely pleasing to Him. That He cannot wait to see what we're going to do for Him the next day. Kind of pleasing. That He applauds the effort and energy that is poured out for Him. That this is our goal. That as that is our motive, we will be measured, we found last week, by the judgment seat of Christ. Not only what is good and what we've done and the awards, rewards we will receive at that time, but we're also told that we'll appear before the judgment seat of Christ to receive the things done in our body according to what he's done, whether they're good or bad. And again, we looked at the fact that we don't usually consider that. That not only is the judgment seat of Christ about rewarding that which we've done that is pleasing to him, but of receiving what we have done that is worthless to him. That that which we are doing will be examined that day. And this isn't our motive for living for God. This is simply the measure. It's a, it stands as a warning and as a encouragement, both good and bad, that there will be a day of reckoning. But that isn't my motive. My motive is not to get ready so that I can get lots of crowns in that day. My motive is to praise, to be the praise of God. That God is well pleased with what I do. And then when the day of measurement comes, it will be a day of joy and not of sadness. And yet we all recognize that there is much that we engage in in these short days that is just of not great value in eternity. And so we ended last week with the first half of verse 11 that we know therefore the terror of the Lord. That we understand this not to just be an idea of awe of Him, but of this recognition that we will be answerable to Him. This is a Bema Seed judgment and the Corinthians understood this that it, it both weighed against you and for you. And there was a certain a fearful trepidation as they walk and, and confront that, um, whether you were uh, the plaintiff or the, or the uh, accused, that you all come before there with a certain um, fearfulness. And while we recognize there's going to be a great time of joy for all eternity, we also know that there's going to be a lot of tears early on that Jesus will wipe away as one of his acts of grace. And yet the ramifications of those tears, which are wasted energies that are not of any value for the kingdom, um, will span into eternity as they limit our capacity to worship and praise him, as they diminish our toolbox of instruments of worship. And I fear that we in the church have diminished this aspect of the Christian life too much. Yes, there will be a measurement to come. And so among the other knowledge that we have, we know that Christ was resurrected, that we will be resurrected with Him, that we, He'll present us uh, together with Christ. We know that if something happens to this temporary body we have, 
something better, an eternal one in the heavens not made with hands. We know all these things. And we have confidence knowing that if something happens to here, what happens next is we are present with the Lord. But among all the things that we know, we also know the terror of the Lord. That there is an accounting at the end of that transition from this short life into that eternal life, that there is a transition there that we must confront and deal with and that we will be face-to-face with holy, holy, holy God. And that the best preparation for that is to do as Paul says, to make it our aim, our goal, our objective, whether here or there, that we will be well-pleasing to Him. Well, let's look at how Paul intended to do that in verse 11 and following and how this relates to his defense of his ministry before the Corinthians. It says, We persuade men, but we are well known to God, I also trust are well known in your consciences. So among the knowledge base, understanding this accounting that comes in that day, um, Paul says, listen, we are anxious to persuade men. It is our endeavor to convince them of the holiness of God and what it means to be confronted by a holy, holy God. Not only for the sinners to understand us, certainly our desire to persuade sinners that there is a holy God that they must be answerable to. That this is just justice. This is, this is what we see playing out in society throughout time. It is our expectation and we know what a good judge does. He punishes evil and rewards good. We know that that makes him a good judge. And if God is good, then he must be a fair, just God, which means that he will punish evil, reward righteousness. He will do that. And so we must persuade men of this. And Paul says, this is going to be my endeavor. I have striven in all of this activity of mine to persuade men not to follow me, but to prepare themselves and allow God to prepare them for that day of judgment. That is persuasion. It's to convince men of truth. We are not trying to persuade them of a lie, but we're trying to convince them and persuade them of what we know to be true. And Paul has listed off a whole chorus of things that he knows. We know this. We know this. We know this. And so we need to persuade others that we know it. And I want to share with you the number one way of persuasion. And that is not through argumentation. The number one means of persuasion is by example. is by the evidence of our lives that men can look at us and see Christ alive in us, see the difference that he makes in our life. That we ourselves recognize that there's a holy, holy, holy God I must answer to. That I want to be well-pleasing to him, not just because I'm afraid of the judgment seat, Um, and fearful of what might happen there, but because He is my Lord. He is my Savior. He is my Creator. He is the one I live for. Oh, that they would see that in our countenance, in our behavior, in our speech, in our relationships. That they would be persuaded to follow after the same God that we serve. 
when there is no difference between the follower of Jesus Christ and the follower of the world, when nothing looks different, sounds different, smells different, tastes different, how can we persuade men that there is anything different? That there's anything worthwhile to go after? If we share in the same miseries of the world, because we have shared in the same sin as the world, how difficult is to persuade them that we have truth worth following? And so we are called, and Paul says, I have been called to a radically different kind of life. In fact, he's going to later on talk about the fact that, you know, I'm going to be, look like a fool for Christ. I'm going to look like a raving lunatic. That's how passionate I am about following after Christ. Is that in the world's eyes, I'm going to be like a raving lunatic. You are one weird dude. You're insane. You're crazy. In fact, he was called that. If you remember when he was brought to the judgment seat, they said, "You too much studying has made you mad, Paul. He says, oh no, I'm not mad. I'm not crazy. I just know the truth and I am fully convinced of it. And I will live according to it. And it will appear to the world as madness, as insanity. That we are so captivated with this one that we can't see or touch or taste or very easily identify. Our Creator. Though there is evidence all around us that points to Him, and God's Word declares that evidence, and it is uh, still there today, we find that that accusation still comes. Oh, that we would have such lives that would give cause for us to persuade men of the truth that we are striving to live, of what we know, that there is a holy, holy, holy God, a terrible God. Terrible not in the sense of evil, but terrible in the sense of the fact that He is so pure that there is no place for darkness in Him. And therefore, complete justice awaits us in His courtroom. And that's a frightening thing. To get what we really deserve. (laughs) And so... We find Paul engaged in persuading men and calling us to the same. He uses that second person, or first person plural, we persuade men. That we strive to convince men of who the Lord is, that there is a day of judgment for all men, both for the believers and the unbelievers. But in the midst of seeking to persuade men, we have a confidence We are well known to God. And that if people honestly look at our lives in their conscience, even though they have heard bad reports and evil sayings, they know from your lives that is their conscience knows that they have a good report. And here comes the idea of our testimony. What is your testimony? I don't mean the... Uh, testimony of when you got saved. I got saved when I was 10 years old at Bass Lake Camp in, Austin, in Minnesota and uh, I was baptized that next Easter and, and um, 
That's my testimony. No, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about how you live this week in front of people. Not just unsaved people, but all people. How you live this week in front of your family. How you live this week in front of your roommates, your, your co-workers. What have they seen in you? For Paul's testimony was that when you look into my life, um, you see me striving to persuade men, but I know the terror of the Lord and I strive to live in accordance with it and we are well known to God and our trusts are well known in your consciences that I am striving to have this right relationship with God and that is evident to his people and to others around us. That the longing of this person's heart is not to get ahead in life, is not to have bigger house and boats and cabins and all of this, but rather it is to please God. That is the desire of their heart, the longing of their heart. To do what is very pleasing, well-pleasing to their God. That it doesn't fit any other model that is available to us to evaluate. That we look at them and say, God knows them. God knows them well. They're not strangers to Him. And if we are strangers to God, guess what? That isn't God's fault. <laughs> it's ours. Essentially, what Paul's saying here, I'm well known to God. Why? I've accepted Jesus Christ as my Savior, but that's only where it began, and it presses on, and I don't lose heart, and I strive, and I continue, and I am in this relationship with Him where I keep investing myself into it. I strive. As he says in Philippians, as we've seen in the past, I press on to the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. That I am a regular in God's presence. He is well known to me. Because I'm found in His house consistently. And by that I don't necessarily mean church. We call this the house of God. But we know where the house of the Lord is, right? Are you there regularly in His presence? Subjecting your body to that relationship, knowing that you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. You're not your own. You're bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body, which is God's. You see, to be well known to God begins with a relationship with Jesus Christ, but it is sustained through this investment in that relationship. Even as I invest in a relationship with my wife and persist in that, I don't simply go back to the wedding day and uh, I have you know the program and I have the vows and I have pictures and maybe a deep video or something of it. I say, see, I have a relationship with my wife. I haven't really talked to her for a few months, years, decades, but I know I have a relationship with her because of this wedding day event. Where is she? I don't know. What's she look like now? I don't know. It's been a while. What's she doing? I don't know. I haven't really talked to her. 
since the wedding day. She phoned the last uh, a while back. Let's see, where was she? Bora Bora or somewhere like that? You would say, you're not really married. Right? If that was my testimony, and my wife isn't here in the room today, so this kind of works good. I'm a married man. I got the ring. See, I got the ring on the finger. Let's call that baptism. I've got the marriage certificate. You know, there's my conversion experience. Um, I'm a married man. Can't tell you anything else about her, but I'm a married man. And yet, for most Christians, that describes their testimony of being known to God. Oh, I'm known to God. I received Jesus as my Savior when I was 10 years old. I was baptized that Easter Sunday. It doesn't make you well known to God any more than showing up at a marriage or a wedding makes you a good husband. And since it's Father's Day, let's pick on them a little bit. Do you think that being able to physically father a child makes you a father? We know it doesn't. Because we see our society rife with fatherless children. Obviously, there was a father somewhere that fathered that child. But they're not in their lives. The children don't hardly know them. Can't, couldn't identify them if they ran across them. And here we are on Father's Day. Yeah, I've got a kid somewhere. Maybe a few dozen of them. Here and there. I don't know. I don't know all their names. Then you're not really their father. It's because you added some biology to the equation there does not make you well known. There's nothing to glory in there. And Paul says, you know what? I want to be well, I'm going to be well known to God. And that alone about me that God, I'm not just an infrequent, occasional caller to God, but I'm a regular attender in His presence. That that is my testimony. And in your consciences, you should know that. And Paul here is going into his defense. Uh, you should know this about me too, that, that I'm well known in your consciences, that this is what Paul is like. This is just a guy that wants to be well-known to God, wants to be well-pleasing to God, that is a regular uh, participant in a relationship with God. This isn't some uh, off-the-cuff thing for him. This is the passion of his life, is to give himself to Christ. He is his servant, and he is pursuing Christ relentlessly in all of his endeavors. This is his testimony. And Paul presses that on in verse 12. We do not commend ourselves again to you. We don't have to start all over. We are giving you opportunity to boast on our behalf. You may have an answer for those who boast in appearance and not in heart. So Paul's laying it out there. He's saying, this is who I am. And you've known me. It's more important to me that, I, that God knows me, <laughs> first of all. Well, what you guys want to say about me is not going to alter my commitment to ministering Christ. I am not going to lose heart, no matter how many oppose me. For I have 
a different motive, and that is to be well-pleasing to God, not to men, not to the church, whether they be ungodly men or godly men, then that's not my purpose. My purpose, my goal, my aim, my objective in life is to be well-pleasing to God. And I am in consideration of the measurement that I am going to be confronted with at the judgment seat of Christ, the Bema seat. What this letter is about is not for me to boast of myself. And he's going to have to struggle with some of this later on in the book, even as he did in 1 Corinthians somewhat. But to stir up the body of Christ to remind them that it should not be so difficult to recognize godliness when they're confronted with it. If we are led by the Spirit, we should have the capacity to distinguish between those who are the real deal and those who are simply in appearance godly. They look the part, they sound the part, but there's just not evidence that they are passionately following after Christ. That they are well-pleasing to Him, that they are desiring after Him, that they're walking by faith and not by sight, that they are still kind of pleasing themselves more, and that is the focus of their attentions rather than pleasing God. And Paul says there ought to be a capacity within the church to be able to distinguish between genuine men of God and those hypocritical men of God who are this in appearance, but in their heart they're still only interested in serving themselves. Though they use the right words, though they have the outward appearance, not that the outward appearance shouldn't be there, it should be for all true men of God, but there are those who have only the outward appearance and nothing of substance behind it. One of the ways for them to evidence that is simply in the way that they attack Paul. Paul wants to give the Corinthians a chance to stand up and say, we know the difference. And we know Paul. We know his ministry. We know his consistency. We know the theology that drives him. We know the relationship with God that drives him. We know this man. And we will defend him as we defend our Lord, for he is the servant of God. And we will not give ear to these accusations based upon all we know about you is your appearance. These guys show up. They look very pious. They have all the right credentials. But they haven't been well known. They haven't been measured. And Paul says, listen, you know me. You know my passion and my drive 
And now is your chance to stand up and distinguish, to show evidence that you have the Spirit within you to distinguish between those who are real and those that are the actors. The genuine article versus the hypocritical one that comes in and really only brings misery and division and error. Paul says you should be able to distinguish that. And we're giving, I'm giving you the opportunity to do that. Those come in and boast about themselves. But yet their heart evidences something very different. And so he is giving them the means to boast not of themselves, but of their pastor, their apostle, their missionary. And then finally, he takes to task that direct accusation. But Paul's heard from unbelievers and doesn't surprise him to hear it from these who come in boasting that they are someone and that they should be in control and running things their way. In order to do that, they have to seek to undermine the testimony of the man who came before them. And Paul says, if I am beside myself, if, if we as the entourage that brought you the gospel, if we are beside ourselves, if we are the crazy ones, we're, if that is true, then we'd rather be crazy for God than sane. It's for God. It's to God's glory that if people want to say you're crazy, well, from the world's view, that would be true. I mean, let's just think about it a little bit. You work hard all day, and then you come in here and you write a check for some amount uh, and you give it away. I mean, let's just think about that for a minute. What does the world really view that? That's kind of nuts. What do you get in exchange for that? I've already told you, I would keep preaching for free. Right? So what do you get in exchange for that? You don't do all the things they enjoy doing. You're not going to tear down others to elevate yourself in the workplace. You're not going to join the dog-eat-dog world. You are simply going to work hard and faithfully and diligently, honestly. You're not going to... You know, I remember one job and the friend was going there and says, I'll punch you in when I get there. And I was like, no. Don't punch me in when you get there. I'll punch myself in when I get there. Oh, but you can make more money doing this. If we punch each other in, I was like, it's lying. <laughs> it's not who I am. To them, they're like, well, you're crazy. Why not take advantage of everything out there? To get a little farther ahead. I remember several lawyers talking to me. I had been run over by a semi-truck. Actually, my car had been run over. I wasn't. I know you guys look at me and say, yeah, I can believe it. Um, my car had been run over by a semi-truck in Bernalillo. And uh, the driver of the semi was a wanted felon with an expired license. 
And, uh, of course, whenever something like that happens, lawyers start calling you. You know why? Because you have a great case. First of all, I was in my lane minding my own business. I was obeying the law and everything. He swerves in my lane, runs over my car, squashes me, throws me into oncoming traffic. I get hit there again. And I'm in deep trouble. Okay? And people looking at me didn't, like, you're alive? And I was. I was on my way to do something very important um, for the church. And so I finished that assignment, come back. And they're like, well, you have a great case against this big company here in New Mexico that he was driving for that was hired a wanted felon without a license to drive a semi-truck full of gypsum. You have a great case. You have a great case. You have a great case. You could sue them for hundreds of thousands of dollars. See, that's how the world thinks. And my reaction was, well, I'm uninjured. I just need another car. Now, I remember when the insurance company of the company called me. What can we do? I said, I need a new car because you crushed my other one. It's demolished. Okay, well, how much do you think that would be? I was like, I don't know. Let's go. I'll go check it out and get a new car. And they were willing to do that. And that's all I needed. And they said, well, will you sign off and everything? Of course I will. But you see, that's not the American way, is it? We want to take it to the man. Something like that happens. And that's our attitude. But it's not godly. And so when the world looks at it, it says, you're crazy. And I remember some of my neighbors and some of those lawyers calling me, you're crazy, you have an opportunity to set yourself up for life. I was like, I already am. Are you? Aren't you set up for life? I mean, for eternal life. This stuff here, this is just all very temporary. And it doesn't look like I've been starving because I didn't sue them for some whopping amount of money. And you know what? I'd still be preaching. And But the world says that's craziness. Paul says, you know what? If I'm beside myself, it's for God. If you want to view me as crazy, if you want to hear people say that he's, he's, a, he's a nut, well, I'm going to be God's nut. I'm going to be crazy for him. And if you conclude that we are of sound mind, if we are of sound mind, if in this battle over your loyalty you conclude that this is a guy we ought to be listening to because what he says makes sense, he's he's of his right thinking, He's, he's deriving his truth from divine revelation from God's Word, and we need to be attentive to it, then um, that's for your benefit. If you want to just blow me off, it's just, oh, it's just pastor. He's a wacko. Well, okay, I'll be a wacko for God, and I'll know I preach the truth, and there it stands. But if you conclude this is a man of God that is teaching some sound teaching that I need to heed, then that's to your benefit. I don't think I've got any... It's not going to affect me. I'm going to keep preaching the same things, Paul says. My ministry is not dependent upon whether any man follows it. Because my goal is not to gain a large following of men. Remember? What's our goal last week? Our goal is to be well-pleasing to God. 
That's our purpose, our, our aim. That's our motive, our drive. And so, if you conclude that this ministry of Paul's is, is valuable, then it's going to benefit you. It's not going to, you know, encourage me, because I'm encouraged because of who I'm following, because of what I know about him. And whether anybody else listens does not determine whether or not I'm going to preach the truth. And in the summer months, it's always the hardest. It's like, how can you preach with such passion? There's only 18 people there. Who said Slim Pickens when he came in today? Bill. Slim Pickens this morning. It doesn't matter if it's just my family. I'm going to preach the God's Word. Because it, it does not fundamentally change my message or my passion for that message based on how many people listen. Paul says, if you consider my ministry worth listening to, then that's for you. That's for your benefit. You're going to be the ones benefiting. I'm not going to be the one benefiting from it. You know, I'm not, I don't have a tally up here. But yeah, many pastors behave that way. That somehow, if you're not preaching to several thousand that well, you don't really have a very vital, valid ministry. Nonsense. Some of Paul's most effective times of ministry were he's ministering to just a handful of people. Because he was in prison. And what he was really after was the jailer out there. His audience was really one. And although we would have that mentality that when I'm in dire straits, even to the point of prison, my response is going to reflect the joy of the Lord and sing praises to Him, not sit there and stew and fume and, and fuss, but rather and complain. I'm going to pray, sing praises to the Lord because I recognize that I have an audience right there that can't leave me. <laughs> Isn't that incredible? They can't leave. They're stuck with me. And I'm going to preach God's Word to them. And this man's convicted. And comes to Christ. Paul says, you want to count me as a crazy man? I'll be crazy for God. Let the world consider me insane. But if you consider that my ministry is of value, that it's sound, then you're going to be the one benefiting from it. Because fundamentally, I'm not compelled to ministry by your conclusion. We have two if clauses in this verse. If you think I'm crazy, if I'm crazy, I'm going to keep doing what I'm doing for God. If you think that what I'm doing is great, it's going to benefit you, tremendous. But neither one of these compels me. Neither one of these drives me in ministry, Paul's saying here. Rather, what compels me, he says here, in uh, verse 14, for the love of Christ compels us because we judge this, that if one died for all, then all died, and he died for all, that those who live should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. Again, we go right back to Christ. What is it that compels someone to keep preaching, even if people call him crazy for doing it? Even if people know there's so much... There, there's, this is so costly to you. Just abandon it. And I've had people tell me that in ministry. 
men that I looked up to largely, who said, just abandon that work, just abandon that effort, just abandon that position. It's going to cost you too much. Do we not understand how much it costs to abandon Christ? When Christ presses us into ministry, that the world wants to assault, that even those within the church want to condemn and, and frown upon or, or make fun of, Paul says, listen, what's compelling me in ministry is the love of Christ. That it's his death. He died for all. So all are died, who trust in him are died, and, and he died for all that those who live should live no longer for themselves. I'm not living for me anymore. I'm living for Christ. Because his death is my death. And now what I have left of my life is his. He paid for it. I am not my own. Going back to verse, chapter 6, verse 19, 1 Corinthians not my own anymore. And so, we live for the one who died for us and rose again. We go right back to that knowledge. This is what compels us into ministry, is the love of Christ. We do not do it so that we can maintain standard of acceptance before men, but rather we do it that God might be well pleased and well represented before men in us. And this is the calling of the Christian life, not just for pastors, not just for apostles. This is the calling of the Christian life, hence the first person plural, us, 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 we, 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 we. That we together are compelled to ministry, not because people want to hear it, not because people line up to hear it, not because people applaud it when they hear it, or even pay attention to it when they hear it. But we are compelled to do it because Christ died for them. I have accepted that one as my Savior, and thus I have died to myself, and I'm living for Him, and He desires it. That's what it means. It's well-pleasing to Him. He desires it, so I'm going to do it, and... I'm going to press on doing it. I'm going to keep doing it. I'm going to persevere in this. I will not lose heart. And now it laid upon the Corinthians. They had a choice. They could give credence to those who boasted in appearance. They gave no real evidence of being well-pleasing to God. For they're not well-known to Him. Or they could be ones to defend Paul's ministry and its results. Not to Paul's glory, but to Christ. God has chosen to work in this man, this man Paul. And we will adhere ourselves to that following. And there is no evidence against him here, but rather there is evidence against you who make these accusations that you have no other means to establish yourself in our presence but to attack 
Paul. And this activity continues now in the church age, even to this day. Not only with regard to modern pastors, but even going back to the writings of Paul. People are still attacking Paul to this day. That he reinvented Christ in Christianity. I was reading just this week of a group that essentially wanted to throw out everything Pauline. That if Jesus didn't say it himself in one of the synoptics, that even threw out John as well, that it didn't count. Why? Because they didn't want to recognize that Jesus was God. That was their argument. If you throw out John and Paul, you don't have any evidence that Jesus was God. Shameful. Ignorant. Boasting. Against the truth. So we have a choice to either abandon ministry once we enter into opposition or let the love of Christ compel us, driven by a desire to be well-pleasing to God, knowing that we will answer to Him, be measured by Him, also knowing that the walk by faith is a short one. Very short. Just a moment. It's a season. And then we will see Him face to face. And our challenge is to follow Paul's example and not lose heart. Built upon the knowledge we have of God and His work and driven by the same motives, same aim, the same desires, passions that drove Paul to press on in ministry, to press on obedience. And we're going to see it brought out in the passage to come as we are building to a passage that most of you are familiar with, that we are in Christ, we are a new creature. We're coming up upon that passage. But it's built in this foundation of Continuing and pressing on in the Christian life to endure to, till Jesus comes. Let's go, Lord, in prayer. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us. That by your Spirit's indwelling and work within us, we can have that guarantee that you are at work. And Lord, having that peace of eternity here with us today, that we can and must be compelled by your love for us to live a manner well-pleasing to you. And Lord, help us to have the strength, not in our will or in our character, but rather in our walk with you, a walk by faith, to press on, though men ridicule us, though they consider our ways foolishness. Lord, let us be your fools. And where some... Take heed to the message in our lives and upon our lips. Lord, our prayers that they might come to fullness of salvation and a walk with you. Again, Lord, not to our glory, but to your praise. We pray all these things in Christ Jesus' name. Amen.